biologists were pretty darn good with their microscopes <laughs> at figuring out how many cell types there were. But what we have now is the full molecular portrait of those cell types. We have a complete molecular definition of what molecules they're using and how they work in a rich tapestry of detail that wasn't available before. This summer, Stephen Quake took over from Corey Bargman as the head of science at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. Quake is Lee Otterson Professor of Bioengineering and Professor of Applied Physics at Stanford. He has pioneered multiple technologies for everything from DNA sequencing to non-invasive prenatal screening to microfluidic automation. We talked about open science and preprints, what we've learned after a decade of molecular cell atlases, current challenges in imaging, a very personal genomic project, and more. Welcome to the EMBO Podcast. Steve Quake got his bachelor's degree in physics and a master's in math at Stanford and went on to do a PhD in theoretical physics at Oxford. I became interested in biology as an undergraduate, actually. Uh, I did a senior thesis with Steve Chu, who at that point in time was doing both physics and biophysics. In his lab, he had he was working on cooling and chopping of atoms, which is what led to his Nobel Prize. But he was also working on optical tweezers and using radiation forces to trap molecules and stretch them out and measure forces. And it's what got me into biology and biological problems. And I've been fascinated ever since. For your own lab, do you recruit a lot of students uh, from from physics and mathematics backgrounds? Oh, yeah, I have a complete mixture. Um, I get students from physics, applied physics, bioengineering, biochemistry, occasionally biology, chemical engineering. I've had students come in from uh, what are the biological sciences? Biochemistry mostly because, you know, they're quantitative enough that, you know, they kind of connect to the culture. Mm. Um, but genetics. And they mix uh, harmoniously? They do. Everybody has something to learn from someone else. Nobody comes in knowing everything they need to do to be successful in the lab. And so there's there's a lot of, uh, of helping out and sharing expertise. And in terms of, of education, do you is there something from that that you think should be applied in the way we teach either physics or biology at, at the undergraduate level? Well, yes. I mean, I, I think to be successful in modern biology, you need to be numerate in a way that you didn't historically. And I think you're seeing those that curriculum evolving a little bit. And on the physics side, you know, it's not just about steam engines and ideal gas law anymore. Physics, <laughs> you know, the frontiers of physics in some sense can be found uh, in biology and understanding non-equilibrium systems. And so the examples one studies um, using the powerful uh, sort of formalism and intellectual machines of physics uh, should evolve. So previously I, I worked at the Gulbenkian Institute and we've we had some experience trying to put together a, a graduate program for bioinformatics that mixed people from a math background and from a biology background and it it it, it did pretty well but at the end um, one of the great difficulties was that it seemed to be a lot easier at the graduate level to teach biology uh, to people from a quantitative background than than vice versa I think a lot of that also is because you can pick up a lot of biology ad hoc. As you become interested in the mitochondria, you don't have to understand the endoplasmatic reticulum so much. Um, you can take your Legos and assemble them, whereas quantitative skills have to be built more, perhaps more like a language in the sense that each step is the foundation for, for the next. And recently on, on the EMBO podcast, we, we spoke with Eugene Kunin, 
And, and in the end, I, I don't think we, we use this in the, uh, just for time reasons, it wasn't in the final edit of the podcast, but we were discussing the educational issue. And his point of view was somewhat bleak, I think, in that he said that the, the quantitative twos had, tools had grown so much and the bioinformatic tools had grown so much that it would be um, most advisable for, for people from a pure biological background maybe to rely more on off-the-shelf tools and collaborators than, than to jump in uh, with both feet and, and try to develop that, that expertise on, on their own. Do you think that, would you agree with that? I'm eternally an optimist. And, you know, I just think that especially as a as a university professor, it all comes from the training and the curriculum. And so I think the nature of biological training is changing and people who are going to have those tools uh, as they come along. And one of the things I did at Stanford was to help start the bioengineering department. And that was the only department at Stanford jointly owned by two schools, both engineering and medicine. Um, and we were essentially the first undergraduate major that the medical school had. And the dean at the time, Phil Pizzo, decided this is incredibly important for the future of the medical school because they needed doctors who were numerate. And we designed the undergraduate curriculum of bioengineering so that one could go to medical school from there, precisely for that reason. And we've seen a number of very successful grads go on to do amazing things over the years. So I think this new generation we educate is going to be fully bilingual. I like your. I like the optimism. I hope it pans out. The um and and when you when you got to the end of your PhD in theoretical physics and then you when it came time to move on as a scientist, how did you pick um, your the area of biology you would be working on? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. <laughs> so since I didn't really move on because I went back to Steve Chu's lab <laughs> um, to sort of finish what I'd started as an undergraduate, and you know I, I think the Maybe the way to answer your question is my first year as a graduate student, I spent in the library just reading and I decided I'm going to survey all of physics, see what's interesting to me. Um, and I kept coming back to biophysics. And within that, I was most excited by that. What was then the emerging world of single molecule biophysics, measuring forces, not having to do ensemble averaging, um, learning about individual trajectories of molecules. It just seemed like the most exciting thing in the world to work on. And so for me at the time it was, and that's what I did. How did your your classmates in, in graduate school feel about that conclusion that the most exciting part of physics would be at the frontier with biology? Oh, they all thought I was nuts. <laughs> One field where Quake and his team have pushed the envelope is in the development of molecular cell atlases, moving well beyond transcriptomics. In 2017, they published the murine molecular cell atlas, Tabula Muris, with the Tabula Sapiens coming out in 2021. In between, as Quake wrote in his 2022 Trends in Genetics opinion piece, A Decade of Molecular Cell Atlases, the floodgates for whole organism atlases opened. From your point of view, as you've also written a lot about the, the artificial separation between applied uh, science and basic science and, and the need um, for, for cross-fertilization between translational research and, and, and basic research. In these, in these last um, four or five years, um, when, you, when you look at the results from, from, from these projects, was there any surprising biology for you in the, in the basic sense, something in, in terms of how the organism functions or, or physiology that, um, that came out of these data sets that, that you were really um, 
surprised or just wowed by? Well, there's a ton of stuff that's emerged, you know, and just just to sort of put it in context, I, I think, you know, there's this metaphor in, in, in the lay press that the genome is the blueprint of the organism. And it's really not for any multicellular organism because pretty much every cell has the same genome, but they take on much different phenotypes neuron from cardiomyocyte from you know pneumocyte and the lung whatever you can go on and on and on they're very very different yet they all have the same genome and why is that well i think the correct metaphor is that the genome is a parts list and each cell type uses different parts and what these atlases have done is articulate that um, and give us the real blueprint of which parts are used in which cell type and there's just a ton of biology to discover there um and, you know, for some specific examples of what's emerged that was surprising and interesting, you know, one thing is, I think, that the number of cell types is not growing exponentially. I mean, at the beginning of this field, you know, a bunch of people were saying, we've only discovered a small fraction of cell types. And it turns out that's not really the case. You can look at pretty much any paper anybody's published in this field, and you will not find an example where they've doubled the number of cell types of that tissue. And I'll put the brain aside for a minute. And the brain is more complex than that one. Yes, it is true. We're discovering new cell types for every other tissue in the body. Nobody's doubling the number of cell types. They're rather finding one or two new ones among dozens of cell types. And so, uh, you know, that's interesting because there was a lot of disagreement about that at the beginning. And, you know, the biologists were pretty darn good with their microscopes uh, <laughs> at figuring out how many cell types there were. But what we have now is the full molecular portrait of those cell types. We have a complete molecular definition of what molecules they're using and how they work in, in a rich tapestry of detail that wasn't available before. So what else is interesting has come out of it? The extent to which truly transcription factor gene expression will define the cell types. I mean, better than anything else at defining the cell types. And we can say that with some degree of rigor and precision now. What's emerged? The extent to which splicing is varies across tissues and cell types um, and the number of novel splices that are used in humans, for example. Um, it's much more intricate than people had realized. And even well-studied canonical splices are used quite differently across different cell types and different tissues of the body. And that is like, wow, there's a ton to bite off there. We're learning a ton and we've just scratched the surface of this about the evolutionary relationships between cell types across organisms. And that's going to be such an amazingly rich vein to mine for the next decade. Um, I'm super excited about seeing where all that goes as clever people get into that. I think in specific questions we've looked at, like aging and parabiosis, uh, we've learned just a ton about the molecular details of senescence, of change of immune repertoire with age, of, of the genes involved in senescence, what defines that, what can be reversed and what can't. I mean, the parabiosis experiments, I was very skeptical of that going in. Mm. I thought we were going to show that this rejuvenation thing was all artifact, um, and it was just people fooling themselves. And yet, there really does appear to be a molecular basis for many of the effects that's true and maps onto acceleration and reversal, reversal of natural aging. Yeah, so those are a few of the things. <laughs> that's it was, it was a fascinating starting point to your answer, The this realization that maybe that maybe we do have a reasonable handle on how many different cell types there were. Um, one of your statements at the at the outset of the project was no one really knows how many how many cell types there are, and it, it to me it gave the project an interesting spin because usually when we when we see these kind of data sets they're already partitioned by cell type. So we're going to do the memory T cell 
um, single cell atlas and we're going to do the cardiomyocyte single cell atlas. So that doesn't really lend itself to asking the question, right? How many um, cell types there are? It does, it does put one interesting problem forward also at, at this sort of almost philosophy of biology level, which is what is a cell type versus a cell state versus a transient uh, alteration versus an activation state versus a developmental stage and so on and so forth. But clearly there is a cell type. If you're saying that the morphology and the classical histology basically, obviously with many exceptions uh, because it's biology, uh, maps onto what you're seeing in, a, in, in what would be more of an unbiased approach, it, it, it tends to indicate that what we classify as cell types are real entities. Would you, would you agree with that? I would. I have sort of two responses to the points you just raised. The first is when we or, we organized at Stanford one of the very first human cell atlas meetings, and we had a lot of people show up. That was the first one where we really opened the doors to everybody, and there were I don't know more than three hundred people there. And I asked everybody to write down on their name badge their best estimate of the number of cell types in the human body. <laughs> And you would be surprised how many people, A, didn't want to play the game, <laughs> but the numbers were all over the map. I mean, the textbook number is like two or 300, and a few people were down there, and others were like, you know, uncountable, millions, and it spanned the whole thing. I mean, nobody really had any idea. There was no consensus. And I did a sort of principal calculation to get to my estimate. You know, being a physicist, I like to calculate things. All right, I'm going to calculate this. And I came out, you know, at a few thousand. And the calculation was, you know, that there's no way that biologists have missed 95% of what's out there. I mean, they're too good, you know, and too much effort has been paid. And, you know, we understand so much. If they've only discovered 5% of the cell types that are there and missed 95%, where does that put us? Well, the textbook number is 300. So you multiply that by 20, 6,000 cell types. That was my principled estimate. And you know, it, it's probably not too far off from where the literature is going. The new ones are going to be dominated by the brain. And, you know, and most other things, we're, we're, we're struggling to push a thousand. And so it's really going to come down to how many new cell types we're finding in the brain. That's the first point. Second point is this question you raised, which is a very deep one about what is a cell type and how does a cell type differ from a cell state? And that's something, and it, I, I don't think the field has really come to a rigorous definition on and you know it's very operational it's there for more than 24 hours it's a type and not a state and you know there's a little fuzziness in that that i've never been comfortable with the other aspect of that that's super interesting is just this notion of you know, are all cell types discrete and it turns out they're not um, and you can see continuous variation of cell types and we spent a bunch of time looking at that in different contexts particularly in the striatum and the brain but this notion that all cell types are discrete i think is a false one some of them are but there's others that vary continuously in their properties and we we've got a glimmer of understanding about that but i don't i don't think it's fully integrated into into you know the way people think about the field in in some ways it's it's almost reminiscent of of the species definition problem, where you know there's a real biological entity there, but once you start trying to formalize it, and and it, it becomes very, very, very tricky. But it is it is interesting to see this this confirmation. It, it really does echo the sort of thing you saw after the human genome came out. And speaking of which, of course, you at, at one point famously did your own genome before it was so common to do. And I believe two thousand nine. Yeah, I was yeah. Yeah, maybe the fourth or fifth human genome sequenced. 
And you mentioned at the time that you were hoping to gain some practically useful information. Obviously, there are privacy and medical considerations and so forth. But is there anything you could share that was um, that, as, as you had discussed at the time, um, open-endedly that would either lead to lifestyle changes or adaptations or uh, you mentioned peanut allergy concerns for for, for your kids. Is is there anything um, that, 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 of course, uh, respecting the, the limits of, of privacy and that you could share from that? Yeah, I mean, not a lot of privacy in this in that, you know, I was, when we had that done, I was like wandering around Stanford, knocking on doctor's doors saying, you know, help me understand this. <laughs> and my colleagues got together and, and they got very interested in this idea of how do you treat a patient who's got their genome in hand. And they ended up, a whole team of them, led by you and Ashley and Russ Altman and Atul Butte, doing kind of a deep dive and wrote a paper in The Lancet. Oh, <laughs> this is how you do it. First clinical annotation of a human genome. And what came out of it on my side as the patient, as it were, was I think two things. One is that we all have a few skeletons in our genomic closet right? The estimates are everyone's inherited maybe half a dozen, let's call them not so positive alleles. And uh, the genome sometimes helps you get at that. In my case, there was a, a new, previously uncharacterized mutation in a gene that's been associated with cardiomyopathy. Um, and that kind of got the attention of the cardiologist and said, hey, maybe you should be, you know, kind of screened a little more often for cardiomyopathy than somebody who didn't have that mutation. Um, and so those kind of rare things help you think about what you should keep an eye on um, as you age. The other thing that was very interesting, I think, and useful was the uh, the pharmacogenomic analysis, where they went through and gave me a list mm. of drugs and said, you know, these you'll respond to. These may have side effects. And, you know, that's very practical information. And when it came time for me to go on to statins, because my lipid levels were were not optimal, It'll easier knowing that, hey, I'm a good responder with low side effects to some of the statins. And uh, that made it a little more comfortable for me to make that decision to do that. I have to look for that Lancet paper. <laughs> I once ran into a guy in a wine bar in Porto who was very proud that he had actually been a case study. And I don't know how we got to talking. And at the time, I, I was an editor and he said, oh, I've been in a, in a medical journal. I am, I am the patient in this case study. And he went to get the article. And, yeah, it was a funny it. thing. You know, the genetic counselors had their heads in their hands the whole time because <laughs> this is not what they were used to, right? Because I was like the world expert in the quality of the genome because I had done the sequencing, <laughs> the assembly, and I knew how much confidence to have in various things. And as they were pouring over things and trying to sort through, is this real? Is this artifact? I was the one they had to ask. And the whole messiness of the analysis played out with me as a participant, which is not the way these things are usually done, but uh, it worked out okay in the end. And to, to jump a bit, so from the point of view of, of technology and technological development, recently we've, we've spoken to quite a few people um, who do imaging heavy, heavy work um, for, for EMBO and for Review Commons and for previous episodes of the podcast. And there's, um, when, when we ask them uh, what, what is it that they can't do right now that they would like to do, so what are the, the limits technology are is placing on their work. A, a lot of them say that in practice, they're so um, tied up right now with the problems of properly analyzing the volumes of data that they're generating and, and not just genomic data, but imaging data, movies, live imaging, that um, that they are not yet uh, focused on the forefront of where, for example, imaging has to be. 
And I, and I know that one of the initiatives at CZI is, is, a, is a new imaging center. And um, so maybe you, you have a, a bit broader view here. Do you see, uh, not, not at the analytical side, but do you, are there things that you would like to do or hope to develop for, for biological imaging that are currently not possible? Yes. Um, well, with our new imaging institute, we hope to exacerbate the problem you just mentioned. You know, we have an initial grand challenge in cryo-electron tomography and have a sort of goal of trying to increase throughput in that field by a hundredfold, um, as well as increasing resolution, all of which is going to make it <laughs> possible to have even bigger, more complex data sets that are going to strain our, our, our attempts to understand them. And, you know, we, we recognize that there will be other big problems around computation, and we're going to seek to address them, both within electron tomography, cryo tomography, but also more broadly. Um, and for example, our, our tech team at CZI has spent a lot of effort trying to support Napari, uh, which is a community-built interactive multidimensional image viewer for Python. Um, and it's designed for browsing, annotating, and analyzing large multidimensional images. Actually, one of the founders of that came from CZ Biohub, uh, Loic Royer, who uh, is a terrific young scientist. And CZI has taken on, you know, trying to help grow that ecosystem. And so uh, it's a big effort on our tech team to, to help make that available for folks to try to ease the bottleneck you're talking about, which is a real one. But are, are there things uh, at, at a really fundamental level that you would just like to see that you can't see right now? That, at the data generation end and not the data crunch and, 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 and the pipeline for, for analyzing large volumes. Well, yeah, I mean, the things you'd like to see, and this is the point of going to cryo-electron tomography, mm. we'd like to see and identify all the proteins in a given cell or a large fraction of them and identify them. I mean, right now you look at the tomograms and you can identify the really mm. big things like the ribosomes and whatnot. But, you know, our, our folks have calculated that, yeah, you should be able to identify about half the proteins, the, the, the heavier, larger molecular weight half. And that's like within sight within the next mm. decade. So uh, yeah, we're gonna wanna try mm. to see those things inside cells. CZI's mission includes a commitment to open science. They support the development of infrastructure and platforms to make open data sharing possible. CZI supports projects aimed at, quote, shifting incentives towards rewarding open science practices in biomedical research, unquote. Shifting incentives towards open science is something EMBO is also committed to. Most recently, by making refereed preprints equivalent to peer-reviewed journal articles in the evaluation of postdoc fellowship applications. I asked Dr. Quake what role funders can play and what kind of incentives they can establish to promote open science. Well, I mean, you can require use of preprints, right? And that's sort of what we did at the Biohub when we started. We said all our research and everyone we fund from the Biohub is going to be required to post their work on a preprint server on the same day they submit it to a peer review journal. And I think we were the first organization to actually require that as a matter of policy. And it was like, that was like 2016. And so it was, you know, not clear that people were going to be willing to do that. Mm. And we were all kind of holding our breaths a little bit saying, is this, this is kind of a big ask of people. And they're like unsure about it. They're worried about getting scooped and all kinds of other things. And at the end of the day, it was very successful. We uh, had pretty good compliance, um, large fraction of people willing to do it. Nobody turned down our, our money because they didn't want to do it. And, you know, we never found an instance of somebody, you know, not getting a job because, you know, they had posted a preprint and gotten scooped on it. And, you know, we'd made a bunch of promises that we'd 
help those folks out if it ever happened. Uh, and we were never called upon to, to, to do that. Okay, but you had um, you you had the prospect of a safety net if if it was required. Exactly, we did. You know, then the tidal wave hit, which was the pandemic, and then like we we were like just ahead of that whole wave coming. And I think the pandemic really transformed how people use preprints and it became normalized in biology in a way that was amazing and kind of accelerated. And we're continuing to see that happen. CZI has similar policies about requiring its grantees to use preprints. And and that's been, I think, an important role for funders to answer your question where you started with. Um, you can say, this is the norm and we expect you to do this. And if you want to receive our grants, you have to play in that. So we're arriving somewhere where And, and also now the it, it'll be mandated in the U.S. and in your future, at least for papers within the U.S. system, that there will have to be a, a preprint or an open version. But of course, that's not the same as as the as the open data. Uh, the open science component of it is, is different from open access, right? So that requires a lot more storage capacity, among other things. Is that something that that CZI is actively involved in? We're thinking about that going forward. I wouldn't say we have anything that I, I can really share at this time to be exciting, but I will point out as far as sharing data goes, hmm. that genomics has really led the way for that. And you know, you've got to give credit to the journals because they all began requiring that anyone who published a paper in genomics, all the sequence data, had to upload their raw data to you know a shared server. And That wasn't a thing before in biology. And I think, you know, that was a really transformative uh, moment and sort of set of policies that, hey, and it's great from my view. And look at my students and postdocs, you know, you 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 have much less incentive to overinterpret your data if you know that someone else is going to download your raw data and reanalyze it. And it creates a certain virtuous circle of intellectual honesty in the field that I think has been very positive. Um, so journals requiring people to upload their data has been great. It started in genomics. I think you're going to see it in microscopy and other areas now, and that's going to percolate through the field um, in a way that's that's going to be terrific. And just just to come back to the thing you raised, the question is, when do you share the data a little bit? <laughs> right. And um, what we did at the Biohub for our big projects, we decided we were going to share all the data when the preprint went up. And so we made a point of taking a risk on our side that other people would analyze our data and scoop us with it. And we put all the raw data up for our tabular projects um, as soon as the preprint went up. And we asked people, you know, please, you know, treat this <laughs> with respect and, you know, use it. And it's going to help you do something else. Go ahead. And this was driven a little bit by, you know, our decision in this field, in this area, by Mark and Priscilla's desire that their philanthropy be used to accelerate science. And how do you accelerate science? And I think a big part of it is sharing your results as quickly as possible and eliminating publication delays. That's the value of preprints because it takes a year, year and a half to publish something. That's a delay in other people learning about your discovery. And so we took the same philosophy to data. We'd share the data um, as soon as the preprint went up. And there were beautiful examples, especially with the first tabula paper of people who used that data and were able to publish other things that were super interesting and important because we had shared our data ahead of our publication. And their papers came out ahead of ours. So, for example, on two of them very specifically, RNA velocity and Sten Linerson and Peter Karchenko, they used our data to show that the RNA velocity algorithm worked across a wide variety of cell types. And they did that because a referee asked them to do that. And so they needed to do it to get the paper into nature. And Sten was very clear about that, that it was important to them that they had access to that. And we thought that was great. 
Um, another one was Jason Dury, who was publishing an atlas on mouse of, uh, of chromatin atlas. And he wanted to show, again, probably because the referee asked, that the chromatin and the, and the RNA data would line up. So he used our RNA data to validate the chromatin results. And again, beautiful paper. I think that one might have been in cell. But again, both of those came out before our tabular paper did. They used our data. And great examples of how sharing data can help accelerate science. And, and you mentioned a couple of times in, in, in your answer just now the value that, um, that was added by the peer review of, of the preprint, right? Because this is also a big discussion now is there's a whole spectrum of the, uh, the radical just publish and, and have it commented all the way to more conservative. Let's stick with the traditional paper uh, when it's ready and, and has a stamp of a journal. Um, in, in this case, how do you feel about the open peer review process? Um, so making the, the peer reviews and, and the author responses and so forth available together with the manuscript. Yeah, I've wanted to do that for years. You know, I get these rejections and these reviews that really piss me off. <laughs> it's like, how can a journal tolerate this quality of review? I actually just post this review on the internet because you see how superficial it is and, you know, other people can judge. So, <laughs> you know, anyone who's gotten a bad review, I think is philosophically very aligned with that view. I don't know how practical it is um, at the end of the day. And, you know, I, I would say just more generally, I think the value of preprints is to experts in the field because you have your own basis to judge the quality of a result or a paper and, you know, whether the authors made mistakes or pitfalls or something they didn't see. And the further away you get from having expert domain knowledge about an area, the less useful the preprints are hmm. um, because you're not in a position to evaluate them. And, and the value of peer review is helping you when you're a non-expert have confidence in a result. And, you know, to the extent that publishing the reviews helps that, maybe that's a good thing. I don't think it's a full substitute. Mm. And like this idea that there doesn't need to be any quality control, I struggle with that a lot. So I see an enormous amount of value mm. in both preprints and full peer-reviewed paper. And where you sit in the middle ground, I'm, I'm a little less sure. I think with, and, and I, I believe your lab has has used review comments, for example, for, for some recent work on B-cell development. And... Uh, and I think there, the part of the idea was in the, in, that in between, and, and what happened in practice is in between the preprint and the paper, you have first a revised manuscript, which often changes a lot. So one of the things we've been looking at is the change between the original submission, the revised preprint, and then the published paper. And so far, it looks like not a lot changes in terms of data uh, between the revised manuscript and the final published paper. It changes quite a bit uh, between the peer-reviewed and the non-peer-reviewed um, version. But what happened there really was that about 60% of the time it, it took for the average paper to become a paper, which is when you would the, the average reader would be able to see the, um, the revised content, um, evaporated. So that it was down to like 70 days or something for the refereed preprint to be posted. So that if you were really in a bind, if you were if you were trying to get into a new field, or if you didn't have a or a new model organism, and this this kind of situation you mentioned of well, if it's your field, you read the preprint and you'll know how good it is and so forth. But particularly, for example, with the pandemic, it happened that a lot of people became interested in a lot of things that they didn't necessarily have great expertise on, and that that put a magnifying glass, I think, on the value of having some kind of quickly publicly available and curated peer review process. I think people underestimate 
how important it is to find the right reviewers, to police uh, conflicts of interest, to make sure that the person commenting on the statistics is not the, uh, the, 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 the anatomist and the person commenting on the anatomy is not the statistician, or that they can, but at least you know the, where the comments are coming from in, in each case. And this, uh, it's, it's a little bit of a hybrid creature, and, and it, it, it's, um, but it, it has, I think, been valuable in, in, in some ways as an experiment. The question is, can it scale up? Is is I think one of the problems right now, but in your case, since you you used it or it was used in the lab, do you think the refereed preprint was an improvement over the original manuscript? Well, it's funny you bring it up because I'm meeting with that student later today to talk oh. about our next step on that okay. <laughs> manuscript. Um, so a little bit, the jury's still out for me, um, and you know it's an experiment. This is like the first one we're doing here, and I, I'm curious as anyone to see how it's going to turn out. So I'm reserving judgment until we get to the end of the whole thing. I think for a lot of this stuff, you know, I defer to the wishes of my students and postdocs about where they want to publish and what route they want to go down. And Michael, who's the student here, wanted to explore this. And I'm I'm, I'm game. Let's try it. And we'll see where it goes. So we'll see. It's I'm glad we're trying it. Let's put it that way. Um, because um, I, you know, I'm a scientist. I like to do experiments. The landscape of publishing is evolving, and you know the way you figure this stuff out is by kind of jumping in. And Michael is the first one in my lab to be brave enough to try it. <laughs> so kudos to him. If you want to read the recent refereed preprint submitted to Review Commons by Steve Quake, first author Michael Swift, and Felix Horns, it's called Fate Bias and Transcriptional Memory of Human B-Cells. You can find it at Review Commons or BioArchive. It's a refereed preprint, so you can read not only the manuscript, but also the full set of referee comments and the author's response. You wrote a few years ago in, in, in the New York Times, even though you're an optimist, you managed to, I think, find a, a more grim expression than publish or perish, which was funding or famine, which is somehow makes it seem darker to me. Uh, and the idea that... Um, that something has to change in this constant pressure uh, research is under to pay, as, as you mentioned in, in, in the Times piece, not just the research funds, but their own salary and everyone who works for them and so on. And as many people have commented, this has often a pretty stifling effect on innovation and risk taking and so forth. And so at, at CZI as a funder, how are you taking on this, this aspect of science, uh, science funding? Well, first, Kudos to you for digging way back in history and finding those old New York Times things. And I'll give a quick shout out to my old friend, Olivia Judson, who uh, was the regular science columnist. And she went on sabbatical and got people to fill in for like a month at a time. And I was one of the months filling in. I only had to write four things. And, you know, I got a lot of respect for journalists after that and people who write regular columns. The first one was really easy to write. Second one was pretty easy. Third and fourth. I was really working to come up with material. I'm like, wow, how do people do this every week on a deadline? Um, and, you know, that was <laughs> a really interesting lesson to me. And yeah, in one of the columns, I did use the opportunity to say people are on this hamster wheel of funding. And, you know, especially in the U.S., where there's sort of a lack of reliable long-term funding, people spend an inordinate amount of time worrying about funding for their labs and not doing science. And they tend to overapply for grants because if you ever lose one, you got to have another one to back it up. And so it creates this extra inefficiency in both the system and in people's professional lives. And I was kind of speculating, wouldn't it be nice if most people could just count on a baseline level of support? And I think most academics would be happy to run a group, which is like two students, 
right? And just work on what they wanted and be able to focus on science and be at the bench and not be spending all big portion of their time writing grants. And there's some fraction of very ambitious people that want bigger groups and they'll jump on the grant thing and do that. But it felt like there'd be an overall improvement in efficiency if most people just had long-term support at a modest level. That was my proposal then. And I'm standing by that. I still think that's a good idea. It's not the role of CZI to do that um, simply because um, even though we are a very large philanthropy, we pale in size compared to public funding of research. I mean, it's a t- we're, I mean, of the NIH budget, we're like 1% or something like that. And so we just don't have the scale to do that. Um, and, you know, we live in a world where the vast majority of, of funding of science is going to come from the government. And philanthropy does different things, right? I mean, we, 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 we're never going to replace that. And it's, it's, sort of um, this this question of, of of how you allocate that funding is one that's going to be decided um, by the government and the agencies. And I hope they go back and take a look at that column too, because I think it, it's it's a model worth exploring. And one one last question on, on CZI and its mission. So we've talked a lot about what it's doing in the U.S. and both as Biohub and as a funder and, and as an innovator uh, or innovative uh, institution. Are there any international projects from CZI? Since we are a European organization, um, are they all um, for the United States academic and research community, or do you have any international programs? We fund science globally. Um, we have grantees from some large number of countries. I don't remember what the number is right mm-hmm. now, but it's substantial. We're supporting all kinds of things in Europe, including projects. You know, we fund individual investigators mm-hmm. all over the continent, but you know, some of the bigger projects we're doing, we're supporting. Uh, a big imaging study at the UK Biobank. We're supporting a big X-ray tomography project at the Synchrotron ESRC in Grenoble. Mm, Grenoble. Um, yep, uh, those are two big ones that come to mind right away. Um, that are, that are pretty substantial investments on our part, as well as just numerous individual investigators across the areas we fund. I mean, you look at what we fund in the in the single cell uh, genomics area, the cell atlases, um, and it's people like Sarah Teichman at Cambridge. Um, and at the EBI. Speaking to Olivia Judson and other scientists who have published successful books for a broad readership, one thing they invariably point out is that you need an agent. The odds that a feisty intern at Random House is going to pick your manuscript out of a pile and champion it are, to say the least, not great. Steve Quake is also an entrepreneur who has founded or co-founded several companies, including Fluidime, Immumetrics, and Helicos. We asked him what advice he'd give researchers who are thinking of heading down a similar path. I do get that question fairly frequently by students and postdocs who are considering a career in, uh, as, as an entrepreneur in the biotech area. And I tell them something sort of similar, not to get an agent, but uh, to find a mentor. And, you know, biotech is not something you can do in your dorm room, right? I mean, it is a complicated, highly regulated, capital-intensive area. There's a ton to learn about how to do it right that we don't teach in universities. And so I encourage young folks who are interested in being entrepreneurs, take that first job at a venture-funded startup where you have professional investors, professional management who've done it before, go to a young company that's just getting started because then you see the whole landscape of what goes into it and use that as like, an apprenticeship to really learn how to do it before you strike out on your own. The Chan Zuckerberg Initiative has funded grantees in 31 countries, including international teams in their ancestry networks for the Human Cell Atlas 
and expanding global access to bioimaging projects. For information on open calls, visit chanzuckerberg.com. To know more about the Quake Labs research, visit their page at stanford.edu. To know more about Steve Quake, have a look at Clinical Assessment Incorporating a Personal Genome, published in The Lancet in 2010. For more on refereed preprints, to browse a collection, or to submit your own manuscript, go to reviewcommons.org. On EMBO's site, you'll find information about the postdoc fellowship application process, including how preprints and refereed preprints are evaluated. Thank you for listening to the EMBO podcast. Thank you.